U.S. stress tests obviously played a, a critical role in the resolution of the crisis, and that's led to recommendations that such tests with appropriate refinements be made a routine component of the supervisory regime for large financial institutions. Indeed, as the authors note, the Dodd-Frank Act mandates annual stress tests for bank holding companies and non-bank financial firms supervised by the Federal Reserve. So an analysis of the motivation for and design of supervisory stress tests is therefore well worthwhile in my view. I'll begin with a discussion of their motivation for prudential regulation and what it implies about uh, stress tests and as always, uh, as with all the other uh, participants, um, marks I uh, give are, reflect the views that are my own and not those necessarily of uh, especially my Federal Reserve colleagues in the, and ex-colleagues in the audience, but certainly the Federal Reserve more broadly. Uh, microprudential regulation, uh, according to the authors, aims to offset the moral hazard distortions associated with deposit insurance, in which case the purpose of stress tests is to ensure that bank capital buffers are large enough to to keep incentives well aligned. In contrast, macroprudential regulation uh, aims to, and here I'll quote the authors, uh, control the social costs associated with excessive balance sheet shrinkage on the part of multiple financial institutions hit with a common shock. The authors cite the emerging theoretical literature on fire sales, margin spirals, and other financial market spillovers, where uh, these flaws are seen as inherent that are seen as inherent in modern financial markets also distort financial institution uh, decisions beyond the distortions that are attributable to government guarantees. So I want to make two broad comments. First, um, the formal economic modeling of financial fragility is still, I would argue, in its infancy. And in my view, it, the models uh, of financial market spillovers that we do have do not yet provide a persuasive foundation for policymaking. Uh, what we have so far is essentially a collection of possibility theorem, little theoretical examples, showing that under a particular collection of assumptions, uh, the prices and quantities of some financial instruments could fall dramatically. And I'm not against uh, small theoretical examples. I think it's very important for the advance of knowledge. Um, but since fundamentals are unobserved, there's always uh, an alternative theory uh, in, that's observationally equivalent in terms of price and quantity um, observations uh, in which uh, the arrangements are reasonably efficient and fundamentals fell, and that explains the fall in price and quantity. Now, one strategy for distinguishing between these alternative theories is to assess the plausibility of shifts in fundamentals that would be large enough to rationalize uh, the observed price changes. And to my, mo to my mind, such, um, to my knowledge, such head-to-head -head contests uh, between alternative theories of financial strains are relatively rare both in the academic literature and in, and in, in, in policy world. Another strategy for distinguishing among alternative theories of financial fragility is to compare a broad range of quantita qualitative model characteristics against observed uh, real-world observations. Models of financial market spillovers generally rely on frictions that lead to some form of market segmentation so that you get cash in the market pricing under which assets can sell for less than their fundamental value. I think it's fair to say that virtually all rely on some friction that, that amounts to that. I have a hard time uh, reconciling the apparent fluidity uh, of modern financial markets with the notion that market segmentation is pervasive enough to warrant frequent and widespread government interventions. 
Indeed, one stylized fact about this crisis is that from mid-2007 onward, a substantial amount of investable wealth was reported to be on the sidelines, as it were, waiting for more attractive uh, asset prices. It's not clear to me what barriers would have uh, inefficiently impeded uh, holders of that investable, investable wealth, institutional investors, private equity pools, uh, hedge funds, uh, and the like, uh, from deploying them if they wanted uh, to purchase uh, the assets uh, and the asset classes that were have been um, said to have been subject to fire sales in this crisis, MBS, commercial paper, uh, asset-backed securities, and the like. I get the sense, though, that the popularity of policy prescriptions derived from models of financial spillovers owes less to a hard-nosed evaluation of microeconomic foundations than it does to the attraction of a popular class of narratives about the crisis we've been through. In these accounts, regulators did not fully appreciate the extent to which underregulated financial markets are inherently prone to excessive risk-taking and did not have the full set of tools to cope with the resulting financial fragilities. These accounts imply, consistent with our author's recommendations, that stress tests ought to focus on mitigating the distortionary effects of the spillovers that seem to run rampant in financial markets. An alternative narrative that I personally find more compelling builds on the moral hazard associated with explicit government guarantees and the time consistency dilemma associated with ambiguous implicit guarantees. This narrative acknowledges the potential fragility associated with maturity transformation, both inside and outside the banking system. But it emphasizes the extent to which the prevalence of such fragility is a matter of choice by financial intermediaries, particularly the extent to which inefficient runs, not all runs, but inefficient runs, can be prevented through contractual provisions that amount to partial suspension or can be avoided altogether through longer-term funding. Constructive ambiguity about the extent of implicit government guarantees biases policy towards rescues and dampens creditors' incentives to avoid vulnerability. Maturity transformation proliferates and the implicit safety net expands. This alternative narrative illuminates the critical role of the 2009 U.S. stress test, the so-called Supervisory Capital Assessment Program. Uh, we called it SCAP. By the time the Capital Assistance Program was announced on February 23, 2009, several large banks had already received equity-diluting government capital injections as part of the Troubled Asset Relief Program. Rumors circulated that the administration was considering outright nationalization of many large financial institutions. The acceleration of the economic contraction in the fourth quarter of 2008 implied a broad deterioration in the outlook for business and consumer lending portfolios, quite apart from the mortgage situation. Financial statements in that situation were an inadequate guide to the magnitude of future losses, though, because the Security and Exchange Commission's regulations prevented reserving in loan loss, setting aside in loan loss reserves for expected future loan losses more than four quarters ahead, even if they were reasonably forecastable. So uncertainty about future loan losses and government rescue policy, combined with limitations on financial reporting, made new equity issuance virtually impossible. In this context, the SCAP served two critical purposes. First, as uh, others have mentioned, uh, the test, rest, uh, test provided more reliable estimates of the current and potential future capital positions that would otherwise have been 
than would otherwise have been available to uh, investors. By projecting losses over a three-year horizon instead of being limited to a one-year horizon under SEC reporting rules, it provided a more complete and less biased estimate of current equity for the participating firms. Projections were also validated collectively by supervisory teams to ensure consistency across participating financial firms and provide investors with credibly verified reports, verified by independent third parties. Second, and I think this is equally important, perhaps more important, the program provided a clear statement of the government's intentions for capital injections. If additional capital were required, the institutions and the institutions could not raise enough new equity privately, the government would provide a buffer in the form of mandatory convertible preferred shares. If the hole could be filled with private equity, further dilution by capital uh, injections from the government would be unlikely, barring a much more severe economic scenario. The U.S. Test stress test therefore clarified the intended boundaries around gov future government interventions. Ec markets breathed a sigh of relief. Equity was raised in short order. Uh, and investors, you can imagine, had more confidence that their investment wouldn't be diluted by subsequent government uh, intervention, except in uh, much more dire circumstances. That clarity came at a cost, however, of establishing precedents that essentially expanded the implicit government safety net for financial firms. According to a recent estimate uh, published by the Richmond Fed staff, 40% of bank and savings institution liabilities were explicitly guaranteed at the end of 2009, while an additional 45% could reasonably be viewed on the basis of official actions and official statements as implicitly guaranteed. Back in 1999, the figures were very different. Only 13% of bank and savings institution liabilities then were implicitly guaranteed by that criteria, while 50% were explicitly guaranteed. Thus, overall government guarantees have gone from 63% of bank liabilities in 1999 to 85% uh, at the end of 2009. So I've been discussing the theoretical distinctions between micro and macro prudential approaches to stress tests. I also want to comment on the practical distinctions the authors draw. And here I think they overstate the differences a bit between current practice and what they call macro prudential stress tests. The authors emphasize the goal of ensuring that the banking system has sufficient capacity to continue lending. On that basis, they argue that evaluating bank solvency based on capital ratios rather than the dollar value of capital allows banks to remedy capital deficiencies by reducing lending, potentially exacerbating the effect of banking system deleveraging on credit supply. Quote, supervisors should mandate, the author state, dollar amounts for capital additions rather than focusing on restoration of capital ratios. This is actually what we do. Uh, financial firms participating in the SCAP uh, were asked to estimate expected losses on their year-end 2008 portfolios under two macroeconomic scenarios and compare them to uh, resources from current capital plus current allowance for loan uh, loss reserves plus resources available for, from pre-provision net revenue over the two years. Firms were generally not allowed to meet their capital need by planning on shrinking their balance sheets. I also think the authors are a bit off base in criticizing stress tests for neglecting wholesale funding. 
And it is true that short-term creditors would pose risks to financial institutions if they engaged in a run. But the central premise of the capital assistance program was that participating banks would receive government funds to ensure that they remain amply capitalized. And this implied, I think, a commitment to support those firms' deposit and non-deposit liabilities, in essence, to do whatever it takes in the event of a run. SCAP was designed to reduce the uncertainty about how much government capital was needed to prevent those runs and to supply it in advance. To the extent that broad banking system support for European governments was a presumption at the end of 2009, I think the same argument would apply to their stress tests as well. Now, granted, Title II of Dodd, the Dodd-Frank Act aims at altering the presumption of full government support for the liabilities of large financial institutions. The failure of a large, strategically important institution is to be handled under the FDIC's uh, orderly liquidation authority. The FDIC can borrow from the U.S. Treasury to fund the continued operations of a seized institution, including paying out on short-term creditors. But in the end, the creditors are to receive no more than they would under a straight liquidation. In theory, that means no more uh, exceptional support, more, no more support for um, creditors. Um, the FDIC has the authority, however, to make exceptions to that requirement, and their proposed criteria are not exceptionally precise or constraining. It provides them a lot of leeway. Retaining broad discretion to rescue creditors would perpetuate the constructive ambiguity that led to the dramatic expansion in government safety net in recent decades. So it's not clear that the presumption of full creditor support is behind us fully. Uh, so I haven't commented yet on the empirical work the authors used to support their hypothesis. Um, the authors recognize that news about shocks that are common across uh, financial institutions, um, uh, including changes in expectations regarding government rescue policy, could swamp idiosyncratic news about individual institutions. And in that case, the correlations among equity prices and CDS spreads are always positive, and you can't distinguish between their different cases. One prominent thread I want to comment on in the author's discussion is the importance of ensuring healthy banks are capable of rescuing problem banks in a crisis. Uh, but U.S. banking institutions raise substantial amounts of equity in public markets or through direct placements uh, between the beginning of the crisis in, in 2007 and the fall of 2008 when events raised substantially the uncertainty about government dilution and made such investments problematic. My sense is that outside equity deserves as much attention uh, as uh, equity from other banking institutions in their analysis. So let me conclude by saying that while I applaud the author's attention to the theory and practice of supervisory stress tests, I part company a bit, as you've heard, um, regarding the distinction between macro and microprudential perspectives. Most of their practical recommendations, however, for actual conduct of stress tests strike me as quite useful. Uh, but I think of them as prudential stress tests done right, uh, rather than as a sharp break uh, from past practice. Uh, in my experience, the Federal Reserve staff uh, who've been engaged in uh, these stress tests uh, recognize all of the points they raise about uh, capital raising, uh, capital ratios, um, and effects on the banking system and the like. I want to close with a couple of broader comments uh, about the use of stress tests. As I've said, I think they've proven their usefulness in this crisis. Quantifying the risks at large financial institutions is a complex and costly process that's vulnerable to manipulation, potentially. 
a disciplined and well-organized supervisory process for validating those assessments strikes me as well worth the costs. Um, and I expect to see um, stress test methodology grow and grow in both extensiveness, uh, resource demands, and um, application in the years ahead. Stress tests are not a panacea, of course, however, and that deserves uh, that warning deserves bearing in mind. In a sense, they are only as good as the imagination of the scenario designers who need to resist the temptation to dismiss extreme scenarios as too far-fetched or to focus too much attention on fighting the last war. One critical question I'll leave you with regarding stress tests is whether or not to disclose the results, and that hasn't been discussed much at all uh, here, and if so, at, at what level of detail. I think a good case can be made for transparency. Stress tests provide quantitative assessments, they're forward-looking, independently certified, methodologically comparable across institutions. On the other hand, I, I do believe that there can be good reasons to restrict the release of bank-specific supervisory information because the effects that may have on the supervisory process itself. So far, releases have been good, useful, what we did in 2009 in particular, um, but this deserves some analysis going forward. As is often the case in financial regulation, the answer is not as obvious as it might seem. Thank you very much.